People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Very often you know I read to you about the person who's going to be my guest and tell you a little bit about their background to introduce them. But to use a cliche, here is someone that I think needs no introduction and it's actually ridiculous that it's taken this long for me to get him onto the program. And I'm talking about the conductor Richard Koch, Maestro Richard Koch. Welcome to Fine Music Radio and specifically to People of Note. Thank you very much indeed. Actually, it feels, I have to say, like coming home when I come here because I am from Cape Town. Yes, of course you are. Uh, and And I've been in and out of these studios for years. I sort of sometimes get the impression that you wouldn't mind being down here. I know your whole center of the universe is in Johannesburg because of your business and the Johannesburg Festival Orchestra. But sometimes when you hear, you look very relaxed and as though you're enjoying yourself. I am, and it actually always still feels as though I'm coming home. I have a flat in Rondebosch, so it's very nice to come down here. I really enjoy it. And my wife, I have to say is starting to say now, maybe we should spend more time in Cape Town. Oh, <laughs> really? But Richard, we're recording this interview just a few days after that hugely successful last night of the proms, the Rotary thing, which has become very much an institution in which you kind of founded, in a sense, didn't you, the South African version? Well, I didn't actually found it. I think the first ones were done by Edgar Cree. Good gracious. Uh, There's a name from the past. But I've been doing it for 25 years now. Edgar Cree did it for the first one or two, and then Michael Hankinson took them, and then I've been doing it at least for 25 years now. We It was the first time we broadcasted as well on Fine Music Radio. We, we we got great response, but what does amaze me is you really, you know, one thinks of a conductor as having to be in control of these vast forces, but certainly with a concert like that, you not only have a huge choir in the orchestra, but in a sense you have to deal with the audience. Well, yeah, and I think controlling the audience in a yes. concert like that is also part of the gig because the audience can get out of hand, believe Indeed. me. Yeah. So, yes, we control the audience. We make them part of the whole show because they are singing and they're, you know, part, they really are part of the whole show. But look, also, I mean, your name very much is associated with these big concerts. There's the Starlight Classics, um, this concert, for example, The Last Night of the Proms. And this is part of your always having wanted to get music out there, isn't it, to a, a very much wider range of people than would come to a formal symphony concert. Yeah, I think my strengths have always been more on the entertainment side of things uh, rather than serious music concerts. I, I used to run the National Symphony Orchestra for about 10 years. I ran that. But as part of that, we put on a lot of lighter concerts when I was in charge. Mm. I mean, I did do the occasional symphony concert. And sometimes, because in those days, uh, that was in the 90s, conductors sometimes canceled at the last minute, especially in the early 90s. And I found myself once doing a ninth symphony. I remember you were in one of the boxes in the city hall. <laughs> the in broadcasting is for what yeah. was the English service. Yeah. I remember doing occasional symphony concerts, but really it's the entertainment side of things that I've been involved in. And yes, I am very conscious that we need to broaden the scope of music to bring different audiences in. And I think something like the last night of the promise certainly does that. 
which is good because mm. it, it expands the audience and shows people that these things are fun. Let's talk a little bit controversially at the moment about this business of colonialism, which has now become an issue and people saying, why are you doing the last night of the proms? But I mean, you've got wonderful answers for that, haven't you? You've changed the words of Jerusalem. You, you use African soloists. It's, it's very much a multicultural evening, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's very much a South African version of the last night of the proms. And yes, we have consciously tried to avoid some of the jingoistic stuff, which could be criticized. And in fact, this time I put out a challenge to the choirs and said, uh, you know, if you would like to write some different words for land of hope and glory. I mean, I always say, this is our land of hope and glory right here in South mm, Africa, which course. it is yes. for me. I mean, we've got so much potential, so much promise in South Africa. We want some ha hope and glory here too. So yes, um, and I think we've tried to, to change that image of it. And just give me, can you remember a little example of Jerusalem, how you changed the words of Jerusalem and did oh, those feet in ancient times? In ancient times, time, walk upon Africa's green land. Ah, yeah. okay. And then it goes on to talk about the stamping mills and the dry and dusty hills rather than the green and the satanic mills of Great Britain. <laughs> the yeah. satanic mills indeed. Yeah. And what was interesting, because it looks sometimes like the Albert Hall with all those streamers all over the place and balloons, but you see a sea of South African flags waving. Indeed. There were Union Jacks, obviously, because many expats, I presume, come to those as well. Well, and we have Swedish flags and Danish flags and Swiss flags and German flags. There are lots of German people who come to it as well. Yeah, so we try to make it much more local. And is it fun for you? Is it a lot of work preparation-wise? Because you have to do arrangements and all sorts of things, yeah, don't you? It, it, look, it is fun. I really enjoy doing interactive concerts like this. And preparing them is quite a big job because with choirs involved, you need to start very early because they have to learn all the music, especially now that we had a school involved. So we had several meetings down here because I come down fairly regularly. And when I came down, we organized meetings for the various people involved. And actually, it was much better organized this year because we did have several meetings. So people were well aware of what they were expected to do. Fitting the choir on the stage was a little issue on its own <laughs> because we had 240 or something on the stage, which is a tight squeeze, I can assure you. So getting them on the stage was quite tough. Yeah, but I start now with the next one. Uh, so it's it's a year ahead, really. It takes a year in the My planning. Yeah. And now I'm going to ask you, Richard, for your first choice of music. What does Maestro Richard Koch listen to? Well, I listen to lots of things, most of them connected to what I'm doing at the time. And I thought we should start with someone who's been a very good friend of mine for many years, Peter Louis van Dijk. Uh, I've conducted many of his works over the years. I find him a very interesting composer very inventive and he's, very accessible and very accessible yeah. and he's done several works to do with the san people the bushmen and we recorded some years ago his san gloria with the chanticleer singers and we've performed it in many different versions now with marimbas and organ with orchestra with small orchestra because i've commissioned in some cases different orchestrations from him or from other people so that we can perform it with different setups and so I would like to listen to some of the San Gloria.
Heart of the San Gloria by Peter Louis van Dijk, the first choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Richard Koch. Richard, we were talking about the last night of the proms, and the other really large project you get involved with is the Starlight Classics, which is lighter, really, than the last night. That's where you you bring in crossover and that sort of thing. Well, that also has an interesting history, because I looked at the very first program we did, and it was actually Starlight Classics. Mm-hmm. It was mostly classics or light classics. But over the years, and that's been going for nearly 20 years now, it's morphed into more of a variety show. And it is actually a production now mm-hmm. with dancers and singers and acrobats and all sorts of things. Lighting. Lighting. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole production, mm. which it wasn't to start with. Actually, we just had white lights on the stage and people performing classics and light classics. Um, but it's now a real production. And this last time was on television as well. So it's, it's now, it was like a made for television show and it was extremely popular on television. So I think it's going to become, I mean, it's a bit like broadcasting the last night of the proms. It'll probably be broadcast every time now on, on TV television yeah. because it's a very visual show. And, and I'm happy that it's gone in that direction. Because that also, like the last night of the promise, is sold out, you know, a week to 10 days in advance. Now you just cannot get tickets, which is wonderful. It's interesting, isn't it, that those concerts like the last night of the proms are booked out with thousands of people. The classical concert at Kirsten Bosch, six and a half thousand people. The last night of the proms, you sold out both performances, the Saturday and Sunday. Is it a stupid question to say why? Why do people rush to those concerts? Well, I think they've become established events mm. and people talk about them. It's a bit like a Baroque in the Bush, which is another event that I do in Shingwedzi in the Kruger National Park. Is that still going? Absolutely still going. And that's just finished 20, it's now 21 or 22, 23 years, uh, which is booked out way in advance every year because it's become an event and people talk about it and we get... You know, it's it's a hell of a long way to drive. Yes. It's seven hours drive from Johannesburg to Shingwedzi. People come from here. Some of them drive from here to go to Shingwedzi from Cape Town. I can't believe it. There's a whole group in Hermanus who who come up to Barock in the Bush. It's a very, very long way, but it's a very special occasion where you have music in the bush. Uh, and it's limited to, say, 250 people and so you know you want to be there it's it's become a must-do thing and people say oh i've heard about barack in the bush i really do want to do that yeah it's a a a life once in a lifetime experience but that also that's slightly more serious if i can use that that is that's not that's not entertainment right it's chamber music and and baroque it's all baroque music Mm -hmm. so we do bach and handel and this year of course telemann because it's 250 years since telemann died right so we'll be doing a lot of Telemann this year. Because, Richard, just to um, – you run a business, don't you? I mean, I want to say Richard Cock Enterprises, PTY Limited, but it's Apollo Music, isn't it? You, you run a – No, no, I've got Richard Cock Music Enterprises. Oh, okay. Is the commercial side. Okay. But I also run the Apollo Music Trust, which was set up originally in 1981. Uh, a friend and I set it up to promote chamber music, serious chamber music and to support young South African musicians. And it's exactly what it does. 
we do a concert once a month in Johannesburg uh, at Northwood's house, which is a beautiful old Herbert Baker home on the Westcliff Ridge. And it overlooks Johannesburg as far away on a clear day, the Machalisberg Mountains in the distance. Absolutely beautiful. And it's got a perfect acoustic. And we do serious chamber music recitals. And then the proceeds of that and donations that I get from various companies, Rand Merchant Bank and the Oppenheimer Memorial Trust, we support about 10 students a year uh, with studies, either here or overseas. And we also do a lot of educational concerts for children. That's another wing of their operations and vocal masterclasses once a year. My gosh, yeah. that's, that's a lot. My it gosh. is. And so someone is chosen at the masterclass to go and study in Germany, and we support their studies, their flights, teaching them German and their accommodation, everything for one year. And then most of them get accepted to do a master's course, and then we need to find other funding for them. Yeah. And then what does the other branch do, the Richard Koch Music Enterprises? That's, that's more the, the commercial The commercial side. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I have to live somehow. So I do concerts, a lot of commercial work. We do entertainment concerts like Last Night of the Proms, Songs of Praise, which I have to limit now to 10 a year around the country. Later this year, I'll be doing one in Neisner. Uh, and it's mostly people who've come through my choirs or friends of mine who've gone to live in other parts of the country who remember what we do. And they say, ah, oh, we must do this here now. So we do them all over South Africa. I think we've done them in something like 30 different venues around South Africa. Cities, towns, big cities, small cities, small towns. Um, and, yeah, it's also very successful. But though, all, all these little bits go up to make Richard Koch Music Enterprises. I see. And all the while, you also do, as you said, in the Baroque in the Bush and Apollo the Series side because you have a very substantial Mozart festival every year, don't you? Yeah, that's, that's put on, that's a combination of the commercial and the Apollo Music Trust, because we have a lot of chamber music recitals, which go under the Apollo Music Trust, but then we do kids' concerts and sort of more lighter things as well, which are under the commercial wing. Okay, well, we're going to take another piece of music. Then I want to find out about your background, <laughs> your long and uh, eventful life. What's your next piece of music, Richard? It's Cock? the Annan Polka, which is a cheerful piece by Johann Strauss, which is dedicated to all people called Anne, Annette, Nina, Nanel, all of these things. <laughs> and here Richard is conducting the National Symphony Orchestra. Thank you. 
The Annen Polka by Johann Strauss. There you heard the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Richard Koch. Richard, those were the days, weren't they? Because you said earlier you were artistic director of the orchestra for some time, weren't you, up until it was disbanded by the yeah, It was about nine years in all. Yeah. Um, and you made a number of recordings as well, commercial we recordings. We always used the first couple of weeks of the year because early in January there was very little going on. Actually, that's why I put the Mozart Festival now in that time of year because there's nothing else going on. It's a wonderful time to do concerts. Yeah, so we used to spend the first couple of weeks of the year doing recordings. It got the players back into shape. And we made we made five CDs for the Marco Polo, Naxos label. And we made at least five, six, or seven other CDs in the years that I was involved there with um, light classics, with the choirs. We did a Christmas CD and so on. And they are played here at Fine Music Radio. Well, thank God I made them because they are used (laughs) on on another radio station in Johannesburg also a lot. You're not talking about Classic FM. I am. (laughs) Because it, it is interesting, isn't it, Richard, that you do a program called People of Note on Classic FM and think I... In fact, I think I stole the name from Classic FM because I used to do it, remember? When I, I, was in I certainly do, and and I took it over from you. That's right. Yeah. Anywho, um, I just want to say this music, just tell us a little bit about, you, you were born in Port Elizabeth, weren't you? I was. And where did the music come from, Richard? I think the music came from both sides of my family. My uh, My mother's father was a viola player, not a professional viola player, but he was German. And he was a viola player, and he played in the East London Municipal Orchestra. And my gran played the piano for that orchestra. On my father's side, there have been organists and singers in the family. In fact, my great-grandfather was the organist of St. Mary's Woodstock in the late 1890s, early 1900s. Goodness me. And he started a a Gilbert and Sullivan Society. And I know you're doing something... Uh, with the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, but he had a very active Gilbert and Sullivan Society. So he was also involved in that side of music, which is quite interesting. So did you go the normal route? Did you start playing the piano? I started playing the piano from the age of, I don't know, six, I guess, in Port Elizabeth. But funny enough, the junior school that I went to, Woodridge, had nothing in the way of music. I had a piano lesson once a week from a Mrs. Bunderman. Oh, uh, who was quite a f- large, fierce lady. <laughs> but even in those days, I have to say, I used to practice after lunch when the whole school used to have a rest. Everyone had to go and lie down after lunch, and I was lucky enough that I could go and play the piano and practice. And in the piano stool were a lot of books of songs, and I used to do sight reading. So I'm I'm quite a good sight reader now. So I would put up a book, and I would play songs by, I think it was Albie Lowe's South African albums, Polly Onschan Pereltu. And the boys used to quite enjoy it. And, you know, they would they would say, oh, when you practice, you must play this tune or that tune. Uh, Bobby Jan Klimdiberg was another one. So, and I used to play all these tunes. And I think that was my first experience of entertaining people with music because <laughs> they used to ask me to play these tunes. It was like a request program. And then I used my parents moved to Cape Town, and because it was a boarding school, I was left there. And I used to go out on. We were allowed out one weekend in each half, and I went with a, f- a family called Matthew, 
uh, Christopher Mayhew was my friend. He's now a well-known oncologist in London. And his mother asked me one day, please, to sing. I don't know why she asked me to sing. Her daughter was a singer, Rosemary Mayhew. And she asked me to sing, and I did. And she said, you've got a very nice voice. Was this as a child? As a not, child. Not a, I must have been nine or ten. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. And then I do remember we got a new headmaster at the school, and finally we had a carol service at the end of the year, and I sang once in Royal David City. Then, in Standard 6, I came here to school in Cape Town at Bishop's. And my father had always said to me, when you get to Bishop's, you're going to be in the choir. I mean, it wasn't, would you like to be in the choir? You are going to be in the choir. <laughs> right. And I started organ lessons because there was this tradition in my family uh, of my great-grandfather having been an organist. Funnily enough, my great-grandfather on my, also my father's side, but the other side of the family was also an organist somewhere on the Isle of Wight. Um, and my grandfather had been a chorister in St. George's Cathedral. In Cape Town? In Cape Town. My oh, grandfather. Interesting yeah. links, my yeah. goodness. And, yeah, I I found this all quite fascinating. I think I know more about it now. I didn't know quite so much about it then. And, in fact, there's a lovely story, because my gran was at St. Cyprian's School, and she said they used to walk down from St. Cyprian's to come to services in the cathedral, and that's where she fell in love with the head chorister, who was my grandfather. How about that? <laughs> Isn't that sweet? Story. That is, that is. Yeah. So that's how the organ came into that's your life. That's how the organ came into my life. And I, I did organ lessons from Standard 6 until I left school. I want to talk about the fact that you went to Chichester and were very, very successful there as an organ scholar. What were you there? No, no. I was Well, I started life as a, a countertenor in the choir, an alto lay vicar, we were called. I studied for a year after finishing university here. I... All during my university career, I had a job as an organist at St. Michael's Observatory. St. Michael by the Match Factory, it was known as. <laughs> because in those days, there was a lion match factory. And so straight out of school, I got this job as organist of St. Michael's. And it had an all-male choir in those days. And I was hooked on choral music. I loved choral music. Claude Brown, who was the director of music at Bishops, and then John Badminton made sure that that was you know, where I was going. And funny enough, I wanted to be a farmer. And in my last year at school, the farm was sold. I had an uncle and aunt who had a farm. They had no children of that sort of age. And I was convinced that I was going to take over this farm, but it was sold. And John Badminton said to me, actually, I'm telling you now, you'd make a good musician. So that was, that was it. My, that was my career laid out for me. <laughs> and I went to UCT. But I'd never formally studied music. I didn't do music as a subject at school. So in my, I stayed for an extra year of post-matric at school, and I really worked hard at my music in that year. And then I was accepted at the South African College of Music. But I had a lot of catching up to do. But the church, funny enough, playing at St. Michael's Observatory helped me because I had to learn that pretty quickly too. And Barry Smith has been an enormous influence on my life. I used to sing in all the things that he put on, big services in the cathedral, St. Matthew Passion, all these big works that he used to do, we used to join in. So I've had many wonderful inspirations in my life. 
Now, I want to take a music break at this point, but I want to ask you, we're going to do this in reverse. You are credited as being the first professional countertenor in South Africa, countertenor. And there is a recording lurking of you singing countertenor, which apparently is linked to Chichester, isn't it? The, the, your countertenor. Well, yeah. So debut. when I, I studied for a year at the Royal School of Church Music, and then I was not ready to come back to South Africa yet. And my teacher at that stage was a chap called Simon Lindley. And he was a pupil in turn of John Birch, who was the organist at Chichester. So he said, Don't, I'll make a few phone calls, which he did. And it happened that Chichester were looking for a countertenor, which I was. I was a countertenor. And so I got a job in Chichester singing countertenor. And then, fortunately, one of the teachers at the school was leaving and he taught English. So I became a countertenor first and an English teacher second. So what is this recording that we are going to hear? I used to come back every two years from England, and every time I came back, Barry Smith would organize a concert where I would sing. And this particular time, he organized a concert where I sang this beautiful little Bach cantata called Schlage doch gewünschte Stunde. And it has strings, countertenor, and a bell, because it's sort of like Schlage doch is the the bell uh, calling on the wished-for time.
that's been played on the air before in South it's Africa. never been played I in fact fortunately Barry Smith had this recording yes, he did and he gave it to me uh, and I think it came from Lloyd Strauss Smith's library uh, I don't have it so uh, it's certainly never been played on the air but that was me singing as a countertenor I have no other record of me singing countertenor <laughs> that was Richard Cock who's my guest on fine music radio's people of note this week and Richard, because, I mean, you're obviously not still a countertenor, but I do remember one bizarre occasion in Johannesburg where you appeared on the platform dressed in a woman's outfit, sort of Brunhilde-ish, and sang a countertenor piece 10, 12 years no, ago. No, no, I sang Rule Britannia. That's what But I, I remember appearing as, uh, I can't remember what my name was, somebody Gallo. Uh, I to sing a Rule Britannia. <laughs> I was an imported Italian singer. <laughs> as long as you weren't Florence Foster Jenkins. I definitely wasn't. Anyhow, we, we got as far as your being I'm enjoying catching up because as I know, we, it's we, fantastic. Yeah, we know you so well as a conductor coming down here and getting all these thousands of people to come and listen to you and watch you. Tell us the, how you got from Chichester back to Johannesburg. Well, I studied for a year at the Royal School of Church Music because church music was my big thing. And then I was lucky enough to get this job in Chichester, and I stayed there for seven years, and I learned an enormous amount. Uh, John Birch was a very tough person to work for, and he expected only the highest standards. I learned a fantastic amount from him. After five years, uh, the assistant organist left, and I was offered the job of assistant organist, because during those five years, I had completed my fellowship of the Royal College of Organists. I'd always played the organ, so I was very happy and lucky to be able to do that. Uh, I then was given the job of assistant organist, which went with it was director of music in the Cathedral Choir School. It was a hell of a big job, uh, and it was relentless. Seven days a week, you know, for a couple of months at a time, and it was pretty punishing. And then a um, after about, I don't know, 20 months of doing that, out of the blue, I got a call from the head of music at the SABC, who at that time was Chris Swanepoel. And he had spoken to Barry Smith, and Barry Smith had recommended me, so he phoned me. And he said, I'm going to be in London in 
two or three days' time, and I would love you to come and meet me. And I went up to London, and I met him. And the result of that was that he said, uh, the SABC choir has completely collapsed, and I would like you to come back and restart it, and also start a chamber choir. And funny enough, after seven years away, I was ready to come home. And that's the result. I came home. I started the two choirs. I spent a month auditioning people. And on October the 1st, I spent September auditioning. October the 1st of 1980, I started two choirs, the Chanticleer Singers and the Symphony Choir of Johannesburg. They were then the SABC Choir and the SABC Chamber Choir. But they've continued now since I've been back, 1980, 37 years, both choirs still going strong. And then you left the SABC, didn't you? Because you did, you went all academic. You went to Wits University. Well, I didn't go academic. Uh, the the orchestra, uh, people forget that in 19, the end of 1986, the orchestra was removed from the SABC. Twice it's been removed. First in 1986, it joined with the Pact Orchestra, and the SABC guaranteed some funding for five years. They didn't want an orchestra. After five years, if you can believe, 1991, they said, no, we want the orchestra back again. They got the orchestra back. And then 1996, almost, you know, like clockwork, they decided, no, they didn't want it again. It was one of the first things to go after 94. But it took a while to wind it up. So twice I was, in a way, retrenched from the orchestra. So I was two years at Wits University, and then I was asked to go back to the SABC, I think because they knew that after the period had run out, they were going to get their orchestra back. So I went back to the SABC, and I took over the running of the orchestra from 1991, and I very well remember it was in November or December 1991, and the first thing I did, because also people forget that uh, South Africa was in a bad way in 1991. There were a lot of uh, violent protests. There were bomb blasts. Bomb awful blasts. Things, yeah. Awful things were happening. People were being slaughtered all over the place. And we did a peace concert in St. Mary's Cathedral. And we did exactly the same in Regina Mundi in Soweto. Regina Mundi was the center of resistance. A lot of big meetings were held in Regina Mundi. There were bullet holes in the windows and the walls and so on. And the orchestra were absolutely terrified of going into Soweto. And I got Agri Claster, who was the editor of the Sowetan, to come and talk to the orchestra. And I remember his saying to them, you know, you're as weird in Soweto as if a space, an alien, had arrived. <laughs> it couldn't have made them feel better. Yeah, it didn't. And they, we put them all in a bus and <laughs> took them all up to Soweto. I, I remember it very, very clearly. And we also, that same December, uh, we did uh, a concert for uh, Mozart's death day, 1791. That's right, that's right. That very year we did it, and we did it as a fundraiser for AIDS. And I so well remember it because people, when I said, you know, the, the incidence of AIDS in South Africa is, let's say, 5%. I don't know what it was in those days, 
but it was quite a new thing, and there was an AIDS hospice. And I said, if it's 5%, there are a 1,000 people in this hall. That could be 50 people in this hall, and they all burst out laughing. It was pretty shocking, I must tell you. And, I mean, it makes me go cold now to think of it, because people were totally unaware of the seriousness of AIDS in those days. Mm. Sue, my wife, was an AIDS counselor. We we were both involved at St. Mary's Cathedral in Johannesburg, and she was an AIDS counselor, and it absolutely finished her. She she was traumatized by this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very, very serious problem, but people didn't take it seriously until it became much more serious. So those were some of the things we did in those early days. And then we, we well, you were there because you used to do the announcements at the orchestra at the concert. Hall, yes, yes. And then, if you remember, soon after 94, they, they wanted to rebuild the city hall to make it the legislature for Gauteng. And there was dust everywhere, asbestos dust. And the hall just became unusable. So we moved it to the Linda Auditorium. And we almost doubled the audiences once we'd moved out of the city hall. And you had two concerts a week. Suddenly we did two concerts a week. Yeah, Now twice a week. Should another piece of music, please, please. Well, Bach is my favorite, I have to tell you. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of Bach is the slow movement of the double violin concerto. It's just absolutely heavenly music. It's like a love affair between two people, these two violins weaving in and out of each other. the slow movement of the concerto for two violins by Bach, and another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, the conductor Richard Koch. Richard, we've done a lovely history of your life through um, Chichester, 
and then the SABC and those really unpleasant years between 1986 and really 1994. And all through this, you've managed to keep orchestras and choirs going. Now, for example, you come down here also to do the university choir. You recently, just after the last night of the proms, did a concert with the UTC. university orchestra. University yes. orchestra, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm very lucky that uh, very often these things combine so that I can do two things in one, as it were. And I conducted the university orchestra recently doing Beethoven V and the Ravel Piano Concerto okay. with, with talented young people. And it's really a pleasure to work with them. I love working with young people. Yes, I read somewhere that you love making music with children. I do. And I love making music with amateurs also. Yes. Uh, every year I do a, an orchestra from scratch in Johannesburg where anyone can come and play. We have one rehearsal and then we do a concert. <laughs> you used to do Gilbert and Sullivan from scratch. I and remember Messiah from scratch. Yeah, That's we did right. many things from scratch over the years. You must have immense patience, Richard. Well, it's a sort of a miracle, I have to tell you, that it all comes together <laughs> in the end, especially with the orchestra because we have, you know, seven-year-olds and 87-year-olds coming to play. And they probably love it and do and their best. And they love it. They do their best. They take away the music and practice and then all come together. Unlike the professionals. <laughs> well, unlike... <laughs> no, I shouldn't have said but, that. But, all... <laughs> but uh, it's wonderful to work with young, enthusiastic people like the, the orchestra at the university, the UCT Symphony Orchestra. They do a fantastic job. And you're a busy man, but you're clearly enjoying it. You look well. You um, come down to Cape Town and see us a lot, so I'm very pleased about that. More and more. More and more. Maybe even more and more. <laughs> Richard Cock, it's been fascinating talking to you, and thanks for sharing a lot of special memories of your life with us and some of the music. And what we're going to end with? We're going to end with part of the Ravel G Major Concerto for piano, which I played recently with this wonderful young student, Johan Chun. And this is with, uh, I don't know who's playing on this recording, but uh, this is the work that we played recently. Richard Cock, thank you so much. And come and see us again here on Fine Music Radio.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Don't miss the curious incident of the dog in the night time, presented by Peter Turin. From the best-selling novel comes this multi-award winning play, directed by Paul Warwick Griffin, with an unforgettable cast including Kai Brummer, the Soho Siabe, Ashley Dowds, Kate Normington, Nicholas Ellenbergen, Liz Simchak, Jenny Stead, Jenna Galloway, Dylan Eady and Clayton Evertson. Embark on this extraordinary life-changing journey making its South African debut at the new Theatre on the Bay, September 25. Book now at peterturin.coza. FMR.